Welcome to this uh, third uh, summer school uh, public lecture. Um, and I'm really delighted uh, to welcome a very old friend, I've go back a long time, uh, Professor Andrew Gamble from a university whose name I can never remember. Uh, Cambridge, I think it is, Andrew. Uh, as he knows, I'm, a, I'm an LSE sectarian. Uh, the only thing I can always think is that if only Andrew should have come to the LSE. Um, it's fantastic to have you here, Andrew. Andrew, um, both in this country and elsewhere, has developed a huge reputation on political economy, on British politics, on Britain in decline. He wrote many, many years ago in 1981. I don't know what the answer to that story is now, Andrew. I thought Mrs. Thatcher saved the country, but then that's another question. Um, in 1996, Andrew wrote a book about a man called Hayek, who has some connections uh, uh, with this school, one of our Nobel Prize winners. Uh, he wrote uh, in 2003, Between Europe and America, The Future of British Politics, and 2009, he wrote Spectre at the Feast, which was about the crisis back in 2009. And in some ways, you might say this is part two to the book Spectre at the Feast, because that was, in a sense, attempting to analyse the origins of the crisis, what the crisis meant only a year or so after the, the great financial crash of Wall Street and elsewhere in 2009, and I think this, this is going to continue. The title is provocative. It's there to suggest a real debate. The crisis without end with a question mark. The unravelling of Western prosperity. Andrew, you should have come to the LSE. You are back at the LSE, at least this evening. I wonder if we could give him a proper summer school welcome. Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for that great introduction. <laughs> well, what, uh, what I want to do is, uh, is just talk about some of the, uh, some of the themes of the, of the book. But I'd st I'm going to start with uh, some, recent, uh, some recent events. Only this, uh, this week uh, we learned that in Spain um, prices dropped by 0.3% uh, in the previous month on an annual basis. In Japan, in uh, this year, we've seen this spectacle of the new Prime Minister, Abe, instructing the Bank of Japan to aim for higher inflation, to actually boost inflation in order to uh, uh, ward off the danger of uh, a deflation in that country. And in the UK... The government is proclaiming a recovery, but interest rates are still at 0.5%, and there are fears of uh, new asset bubbles. And whatever else we have in Britain, we still have the same old economy. There hasn't been any significant rebalancing of the economy since the, uh, since the crash. And any of you pan out to look at the at the broader picture, the United States, the public debt is now 17 trillion and still rising. That's 104% of GDP. Aggregate debt in the US is 260%. And if you look at China, China is now at 250%. It's aggregate debt. Its public debt is a lot lower than the United States, but its aggregate debt is almost at the same level. So there are some huge problems in the international economy that uh, have not yet been resolved. We're still living in the aftermath of the crash, the great crash, financial crash of 2008. And what I think everybody now recognises is that the scale of those events in 2007, 2008, 2009... Mm. They bear comparison with the events of 1929. That's the most obvious way to think about what uh, happened in 2007-2008. But with one very important difference, which is that in 2007-2008, the crash was as severe as in potentially as severe as in 1929, but disaster was staved off because unlike in 1929, the governments of the Western world 
and indeed China, cooperated to stave off a financial meltdown. And they succeeded. They threw almost every policy instrument they could at the problem, and they managed to stabilise the international economy. But it was at a cost, and the cost has been seen in the last five, six years, which has been the slowness of the recovery. Only now are economies, Western economies, regaining the level of output which they had in 2008 before the crash. And there are still a large number of economies which have not yet reached that level. This is unprecedented in in the history of capitalism since uh, 1945. And the depth of the crisis can be seen in the way that interest rates are still so low, the way that banks are still so fragile, the way in which governments are still pumping money through quantitative easing into the economy. These are all signs of just how deep this uh, crisis has been. It's been contained, but it, it hasn't been overcome. And I argue in the book that uh, what, we're, what we're entering is a... Uh, what, we're, what we're threatened with is a deflation trap. It's the reverse of the 1970s. The 1970s, we had what became called stagflation which was accelerating inflation, accelerating prices, and uh, a stagnant economy, uh, very slow economic growth. And that was called stagflation. And Peter Jay, the economics editor of the uh, Times, talked about Keynesian political economy at that time as having become an amalgam of uh, unstable forces, which uh, that something would have to give. And he suggested that either it would be uh, free trade unions or it would be democracy or it would be full employment um, or maybe all of them if inflation was to be, was to be overcome. And what we face now is a new stagflation, only this time. This is a stagflation which has been bred out of neoliberalism, the neoliberal political economy which succeeded the Keynesian political economy. And this time, the problem, the contradiction within neoliberalism is not inflation. There is no serious inflation threat to the capitalist economy at the present time. The threat particularly to the, the Western capitalist economies, is actually, is actually deflation. So how do we get here? We live in a neoliberal world. Um, we have been for several decades. In one sense, that's nothing new. The basic elements of the neoliberal world are the elements of the political economy which has dominated the world economy since the 18th century. But there have been some special features to this neoliberal period of the last few decades. One of them is the role played by the United States. The neoliberal period was initiated by the United States which decided to end the regime of fixed exchange rates to move against full employment, strong trade unions and universal welfare. And in the wake of this policy revolution in the 1970s came privatisation, deregulation, marketisation. And it ushered in the period of that many people call globalisation. But this was a, a freeing of market forces which didn't mean a retreat of the state. On the contrary, the state, if anything, ch- changed its form 
and instead we had smart states, competition states, market states. And the centre of this neoliberal revolution became Anglo-America, which was characterised by financialization, by the growth of debt, by welfare dependency, by structural unemployment, by increasing inequality, and by, and ultimately, stagnation. Thomas Piketty has written very eloquently about the growth of inequality and the challenge we face of the return to a society which is much more stratified than the society of the last 60 years. So the neoliberal model became established and now in its turn it is unravelling. But how should we explain then the cataclysm of 2008? I think there are three main ways of thinking about it. The first is that this was a, a blip that what we've seen in the last five or six years is actually the resilience of neoliberalism. We haven't seen the emergence of any serious alternatives to neoliberal political economy, either in the form of ideas or in the form of movements or political resistance. We've seen occasional flurries like the Occupy movement, but we haven't seen any sustained opposition. And those who argue that perhaps 2008 was just a blip argue that really there is no alternative to the neoliberal economy that has been created, that there is no other way of organising either the international economy or the national economies within it. And if you look around the international economy and around national economies, you see that many of the features that were for a time discredited by what happened in 2007-8, they're creeping back and gradually bankers are becoming more confident again, bonuses are still being paid, the importance of finance is still central to the operation of this kind of economy. So that uh, those who think that this was just a blip say, well... It was a serious shock, it was a wake-up call, but actually the system has survived and the fact that states were able to intervene sufficiently, quickly, has meant that the, uh, the problem, if not exactly solved, is on the way to being solved. So this is perhaps the most optimistic view that you can take, that actually it's just going to take time, a few more years, and then we'll be back to business as usual. The second view is that this wasn't a blip, it's a watershed, that uh, it's ushered in the new stagflation, it's, it's highlighted the dramatic shift in the balance of world power with the, rise, with the rising powers and the, their increasing uh, wealth and importance. And that the, the crisis shows both a, at, at, at root a crisis of growth and a crisis of the tax state of legitimacy. And that neoliberalism has been permanently damaged and it's only a matter of time before something new and fundamental will take its place. So there may be a period of, um, for, for this to develop, but the argument is that the watershed has been passed and there is no going back to 
the old kind of neoliberal world. But the third argument, which is the one that I support, I, 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 and I set out in the book, is that perhaps this isn't either a blip or a watershed. Perhaps it's an impasse that certainly 2007-8 was a major shock, but the crisis was contained. And the, the observations of those who support the idea that it was a blip are not entirely wrong. There has been an absence of alternatives. But those who see it as a watershed are also have some truth on their side because the calm is deceptive and the difficulties of actually returning to sustainable long-term growth are enormous. And I explore this in the book by talking about three conundrums. They're conundrums in that these are conundrums which face anyone who wants to try and govern international market orders. They're not new conundrums. They've always they've existed for two or three hundred years, but they take particular shape in our present political economy. The first of these conundrums is around governance. It's the problem that in our international economy we have increasing integration of international markets but we have on the other side continued fragmentation of political authority and the tensions which this sets up takes new form in every generation so that the the particular form it's taking at the moment is this shift in power between East and West. It's the increasing importance of the rising powers, which was recognised for a short time after the crash by the increased profile given to the G20. And it's also about the increasing role of non-government Networks, the fact that so much of international political economy now is outside the control of governments. There are so many networks, um, some malign, some benign, that escape the control of national governments, but which make the governance of this the international market order we have with all its uh, interdependence and conflicts um, increasingly difficult. And at the the centre of the governance conundrum that we face is the role of the United States. It's clear that for for a period of sustained prosperity to come back, we need a stable international market order. But the problem in getting a stable international market order is that in the past this has existed most often when one power has had sufficient predominance to be able to impose rules. And since 1945 that's been the United States. And the problem that we face in fashioning a new international market order appropriate to the changed circumstances of our time is the role of the United States. What does, how does the United States face the post-crash landscape? What is the United States preparing to do? Does it seek to reassert its old hegemony? It's the doctrine of US primacy Or will it, on the other hand, seek to share power with the rising powers? Will it try to institute some kind of collective governance for the international market order? Will it try and bring in 
China and India and Brazil and other countries into the governance of the international economy? Or thirdly, will the United States, faced with a relative decline in its own position and the challenge of rising powers, will the United States choose to disengage, disengage from some of its leadership roles and to um, choose to concentrate on preserving its own interests in its own region. The second conundrum is the uh, conundrum of growth. At the heart of this conundrum is that capitalism as an economic system has always, its basic principle is that it privatises gains and it socialises losses. Um, The losses are borne by households or by states and the gains accrue to individuals and, and firms and owners of capital. And this sets up a tension between private accumulation on the one hand and social reproduction on the other. Clearly both are necessary in order for capitalist economies to be successful, but there is a tension between them how they are to be organised. And the, the problem of growth that is now faced by the capitalist economy is on the one hand the stagflation, which I've already talked about, and but secondly, and looming over this, and far more serious in the long term, the problem of environmental limits to growth, which the previous 200-year history of growth has largely created. And when you look at, um, you look at the problem of growth, all the past sources of growth have become much weaker, whether it's technological innovation, rising population, immigration, or the idea that the natural environment is inexhaustible. And many economists and economic historians have begun to argue that we've reached a technological frontier. Despite all our great new inventions and so on, we are failing to increase the rate of productivity in the way that past fundamental innovations have done. In the words of Tyler Cohen, we've picked all the low-hanging fruit, and now the fruit that still exists is much higher up the tree and much harder to reach. And this is... A number of economists have begun to talk about a new period of secular stagnation. The third conundrum is around debt and fiscal policy. And this is, the fundamental tension here is between global markets on the one hand and national democracies on the other. And the constraints which global markets place on the choices that national democracies can make. And the, this conundrum is focused on the distributional struggles which erupt in every political economy between rich and poor around the welfare state and its burdens, the entitlement culture. And in the present period, it's led to the battles over austerity, over the the new fiscal crisis, and how the tax state is to be funded and how... uh, its legitimacy is to be secured. Um, We've had a run-through of all these arguments in the 1970s when there was a lot of talk about the state having become overloaded. That was the Keynesian state. Now we're having the same arguments about the neoliberal state. The neoliberal state, too, has apparently become overloaded and is in need of drastic (coughs) fiscal restructuring. And we've entered a period in which politics has come to centre on austerity and battles around austerity 
and fiscal deadlocks have appeared in many, um, in many states in the international economy. Rudolf Goldscheidt, who was an Austrian socialist economist in the 1920s, talked about the national budget um, being the skeleton of the state, stripped of all misleading ideologies. And if you follow that argument, you see the way in which the state is constructed and how, um, how resources are distributed. We're living through a time of fiscal emergencies and choice between solutions which involve either spending cuts, increase in taxes, or increased borrowing. And we're seeing increased politicisation of issues around public spending and about around welfare claimants. And a very good example of this is the, uh, the United States and the fiscal deadlock which has emerged in the United States. Ronald Reagan, when he became president of the United States in 1980, um, he pledged to run a balanced budget and to uh, get rid of the U.S. debt, which at that time stood at $1 trillion. When he left office, it was at $3 trillion. And uh, Ross Perot ran, uh, in, in, in 1992, ran as an independent um, and banged on about the $3 trillion debt. Under Clinton, the debt stabilised um, but it took off again under the second uh, George Bush um, and then under Ob- and continued under Obama with the measures necessary to fight the, um, to fight the financial crash. And today it stands at 17 trillion. Now does, does the debt matter? Um, of course, the answer is, is political. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all so long as the United States can continue to borrow to fund it. But the underlying problem is that the the United States has developed a propensity to overspend and there is no internal consensus of how to cut back that overspend. And so the United States continues on this course which requires sucking in ever greater funds to support its uh, spending which it desires to do. And Democrats and Republicans are polarised on what the solution to this problem should be and because they can't agree and because there's the Congress and the Presidency are deadlocked, uh, there are no solutions. Governor Perry, who was briefly a candidate for the Republican nomination in the last US election, actually denounced quantitative easing as treasonable um, and wanted the uh, Chairman of the Federal Reserve to be prosecuted for (laughs) allowing this to happen, which is a measure of the, um, the extreme polarisation which has developed. The Tea Party has adopted the slogan of cut, cap, balance. They want to create a balanced budget and to cut spending um, very, very deeply. And looming over all this, the United States face a, because of their entitlement culture, they have liabilities estimated at 61 trillion, which are coming at them down the line. So that this is a fundamental problem, which is a political problem. It could be solved by an agreement to increase taxation, but that's blocked. That option um, is blocked. It could be solved by a decision to drastically reduce 
spending, and I mean drastically reduced to virtually halve spending, but that too is blocked for all kinds of political reasons. And so the result is a, uh, a fiscal deadlock and a sense of drift in uh, the United States. So, finally, in conclusion, my argument is that it was a fundamental crisis and the crisis isn't over. It, what the crisis has revealed is deep underlying problems. The, imme- the immediate threat of a meltdown was overcome, but the problems persist. And the, the biggest problem we face is that is a deficit in political will and capacity to do something about the interlocking problems of governance, growth and debt that we, uh, um, that we face. And what would actually change that equation is the big question. Would it need another major new crisis to push us into political action to do something about it or will we just continue to try and uh, muddle through and delay taking um, decisive decisions with all the uh, much deeper consequences that that they may lead to. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Now we've got about 15, 20 minutes for Q&A and then we go up uh, for refreshments upstairs, orangeade and milk and maybe one or two other little things as well, which the LSE will put on. Let me, let me, let me kick off, Andrew. Let me be a little, little bit provocative. That's my function in life now, I noticed. The older you get, the, the, the wilder you can become. Um, well, let's go back through the past. One, one, the easiest way to get out of a, a depression, of course, is a war. Um, well, you think I joke, but the, as we discussed before, the, uh, the United States got out of its depression through World War II and, and, and the fundamental problems of the, of the World Depression. I'm assuming we're not in favor of war and uh, it's not going to happen again. Um, secondly, a Cold War, which is actually not so unlikely, uh, particularly between the U.S. and China, might be a means of mobilization, but I'm not sure that's going to solve it either because of the dependency of the United States on China and China on the United States, and China is now part of the capitalist world economy. So that's ruled out. So we can't have a war. We can't have a Cold War. Um, So I suppose my my question is, and I'm not quite sure what my question should be, but I just wonder if my question is, then the solution becomes China runs the world. Because your argument is very hegemonic stability. It's about a primary power called the United States, which can't do the things which it used to do and can't do now. What's wrong with the argument of simply saying it's China which is going to be the future? It has enormous capacity for further growth, further reform. It has enormous abilities to innovate, as we've discovered over the last few years. It's got a long way to go, but the reserves that it has of innovation, intelligence, universities, and all the rest, that, that is the only way out. Namely, we need a new hegemon. And the hegemon isn't going to be the United States. I doubt if it's going to be the European Union. And I know it's not going to be the United Kingdom. <laughs> so how about that? As a start-off, just to get things rolling. OK. Well, I, I think there's two problems. I mean, <laughs> Only two, OK. <laughs> <laughs> One problem is the United States is not ready to cede its position to China. Um, and the second problem is that when you talk to the Chinese, the Chinese are very reluctant indeed to assume um, a, a larger role in governing the international economy, let alone take over the role of, of global leadership. So, so it... Um, and, I, and I think that's the problem. And also China has... Um, China has many internal problems of its own and it, it lacks much, um, much regional or international support. So it's very hard to see in the short run how 
China could um, take over that role. I think, I think much more promising, although still incredibly difficult to do, is a kind of collective leadership of the great powers, which began with the G20 when, when it was given greater prominence immediately after the crash. There was the beginnings of that sort of recognition. I mean, of course, that, those sort of 20 states still excluded the great bulk of states in the, uh, in the United Nations. But still, it was a considerable step forward from the very small club of Western powers, which had, uh, um, which had dominated before then. But since so- some initial uh, good moves, everything has slowed down. And, uh, and the United States is not sh- showing itself very willing to consider multilateral solutions to problems. And in its launch of the uh, TTIP and the um, TPP, the, the, uh, it's looking now much more for bilateral solutions amongst its, uh, it, 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 its closest allies. Uh, and that's a worrying sign for the prospects for greater international cooperation between the rising powers and the established Western powers. Yeah, okay. Well, great. Let's, uh, let's open up for some Q&A. Let's have some hands, please. Nobody? Surely. Yeah, there's a gentleman here uh, with a, in black and white. Yeah, there's a microphone coming your way. Anybody up here at the top? And there's a gentleman up here. So I'll just take two at a time. Okay, so chap here and a chap up there. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, if you could, nice and loud, please. Yeah, thanks. Hang uh, thanks for the talk. That was uh, wonderful. I just wanted to ask or maybe refine the point you made about growth and how we are reaching a sort of limit with regards to the environment. I think that's very accurate. I was wondering whether another potential, whether you had anything to say about this, another potential limit to growth was the tendency now, I mean, always existing, but accelerating now towards de-skilling, labor-saving technological change, towards robotization, mechanization, et cetera, et cetera, that hasn't, you know created industries with a high potential of productivity growth. In other words, industries that could rehire um, people at the same level of, consumer, of consuming power of income, etc. And whether that could present a barrier when, for example, we have population that no longer can purchase the very products of this capitalism that needs to constantly be reproducing itself. For example, I mean, in the United States, two-thirds or more of the jobs saved since the crisis have been in the, sex, in the service sector, part-time, underemployed, etc. So, I mean, I wonder how that could be a big problem and whether you had any points in regards to that. That may only apply to the developed world, but yeah. still worth Take that one first and then take the other one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take, uh, take that take one. one. Yeah, okay. it's a good question. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's, uh, um, I think that, 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 that's right. And I think, you see, it, it, that's a big component of, the, of this problem of, of this new stagflation, that, 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 uh, uh, that wages are too low. And, uh, but the problem of the neoliberal model is... Uh, nobody knows actually how to how to increase I- I- increase wages if productivity isn't uh, um, isn't rising. So the thing is stuck, and um, and I think the the uh, so the technological innovation that is going on is tending to uh, worsen the problem, as as you as, as you say. Now, of course, I I, I didn't say in the talk, but but. Um, I should, you know, it, it should be noted that um, although th- there are a lot of technological pessimists around, there are also a lot of technological optimists. So, so you will also find people who think that the the argument that um, IT is not a fundamental technology which will raise uh, productivity uh, across the board. Um, is only because the IT revolution is still in its early stages and that, uh, um, that its real potential is yet to be demonstrated. And that, of course, you know, we can't rule out that possibility and that has to be, that has to be factored in. Um, what we can say is that so far that hasn't happened. So people like Robert Gordon at MIT, who's one of these technological pessimists, he argues that, that, that so far IT has not demonstrated that it has that uh, capacity. It has, it, it, it's giving us lots of great new gadgets and, and so on and so forth. It hasn't yet 
done what uh, um, electricity and steam power and other uh, great uh, technological revolutions of the past have done and raised the whole level of productivity of, ec- of, of economies. Just, on, on, just to add to that point, Andrew, could you have a kind of profitable, a profit recovery with a, without a work recovery? In other words, you could have a rise of pro- uh, profitability. You are seeing this in the United States, as you're seeing it. You, know, you, you look at every single indicator on, on, you know, on the FT 500, on you know, what's happening in London, what's happening in New York. You can have a rise of profitability, but you may have profitability without growth of employment, and the jobs that are going to be created are going to be, as you were saying, you know, low skill, part time, etc., etc., etc. Plus, you can force down. I mean, what the crisis has also done, which is also in the FT, is the wages in this country have gone down by about 11 percent since the crisis. Now, if you can force down wages, I mean, it's a good old Marxist argument, isn't it? Never give up a good crisis, a full-scale level of unemployment, drive down the price of labour to such an extent that we'll, you will start investing again. I mean, would you kind of accept that we could get a recovery, but one that's not going to help? Employment, the kind of employment we saw in the 50s, 60s, full-time jobs, pensions, and all yeah. the rest that goes with it. Yeah, I think that, that's the key thing. It's the kind of employment. I mean, the, I mean this, this recovery has... Um, employment levels in a number of countries have been quite high, not, not in some of the countries of the Eurozone. Um, but in other countries, uh, there have been a lot of jobs, but it's, it's the kind of jobs, and that's the problem. Um, and and it's, 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 this, uh, it's this difficulty of creating an economy in which uh, wages of the majority are actually, uh, are actually increasing. And if, that's, if that isn't happening, it means that, that households, a lot of households can only sustain their standard of living by borrowing, by more debt. And, and, that's, and that then takes us straight back into the, uh, the problems which led to, to, to the crisis in the, in, in the first place. And it's that, that's the conundrum. Um, and uh, finding a way out of it is... Uh, well, it's not proving very easy. Chat up there, yeah. Please, Hi. thanks. Yeah. Hi. Hello, thanks. Um, I have a question. In the academic debate, are there any alternative models to neoliberalism? Is it a standing alone um, term? And if none, which conundrums would it require to answer or to explain in order to offer an alternative? Well, I think, I mean, there, there, there are alternatives to ne- neoliberalism, and it's just that at the moment uh, they don't have very much political or social or, or ideological force behind them. But there are a number of pointers, and, and in a way the reception of Piketty's book is one sign that actually there is, uh, there is a deep anxiety about the kind of society which we appear to be blundering into or blundering back to. I mean, the idea that we could, uh, uh, w- w- we could go back to societies in which uh, um, uh, the family you're born into has much greater, input, uh, much greater significance for how, where you end up than, uh, uh, than anything else is... Uh, uh, reverses are the, the whole of the social progress of, of the last uh, 60 years or so. And, and I think the... Um, so I think there are, there are a number of important ideas. There's a lot of, 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 of green ideas about how to reorganise our, our economies as well, which are um, very profoundly alternative... Uh, put forward alternative sets of objectives. But our difficulty is that um, the, the alternatives that have so far come up, nothing, there's been no uh, coherence around a single set of ideas. There's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of, of uh, conflict about which ideas should be given priority and in this situ- this is uh, um, this is quite unlike say the 1970s when neoliberalism in challenging 
um, Keynesian political economy, uh, a great raft of intellectual energy combined with um, a whole set of particular social uh, political forces came together to push for fundamental changes. Similarly, uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, you can see the same sort of fundamental transformations taking place. So far, we haven't witnessed that kind of political movement developing uh, anywhere in a, in a serious way. I mean, one of the things in the book I, I comment on is the extraordinary political resilience. When you think about what some of the countries in the Eurozone have gone through in the last few years, if you think what Greece has gone through in terms of unemployment, um, in, in, in terms of the privation of, of, of uh, and the collapse of incomes of so many households in Greece, and yet uh, there hasn't been that there's been a rise in support for anti-system populist parties of both left and right, but actually the parties still in office in Greece are mainstream parties committed to the basic neoliberal framework that has governed policy over the last 30 years. So that even in, in those countries, we haven't seen, we've seen lots of governments change hands, we haven't seen yet in Western countries uh, a major uh, shift, a major political shift. That's, if you look at the 1930s, this is very surprising. Um, but it's, it, this is a characteristic of, of our present period, and it's a, it, it, it's a very significant one. But that doesn't mean that there isn't the build-up of a sense that we do need alternatives and that we do need, uh, we, we need a, a different set of political choices and political uh, possibilities. Okay, I can take one more, one more question. There's... Uh yeah, guy in the middle with a, with a watch on his left arm and a beard. That's the one. That's how I'm trying to identify. That's it. Yeah, please, this has to be the last one, and then I'll, I'll, I'll call uh, uh, an end to the great... Okay. Yeah, please, thanks. Nice and louder. Okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, my question is somewhat similar to the previous one. Uh, during the last um, European elections, and in general, we have seen a rise in what you said, anti-systemic and far-right political movements and far-right um, political parties. Would you, would you consider them to be um, a, something that is a part of the neoliberal political system and economic system, or would you consider them an, an alternative? Not a good alternative, but something completely different uh, from what we have seen <coughs> until now. That's it. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. I think... Potentially, they're, they're a very bad alternative. Um, the, uh, um, of course, they could, if, if some of these parties came to power, uh, we could find that they, they try and stabilise uh, neoliberal um, relations within their, within their countries. But on the whole, the, uh, the way they're likely to push is for alternatives which are... Um, uh, highly nationalist, highly, highly protectionist, highly isolationist, um, as well as being xenophobic and in some cases racist. So the, 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 uh, that would create a, uh, a fragmentation, a further fragmentation of politics, which would, be, um, which would contribute to the forces making for... Um, for isolationism and disengagement um, and those sorts of forces are actually I mean w one of the things I believe is that uh, actually it's, it's impossible to step back from, um, from where we've come we can only actually go forward from where we've reached and therefore I, my own my own view is that we have to find ways to strengthen uh, cooperation, strengthen interdependence, find ways to meet our common problems 
So any, any political forces which are going in the other direction, I think, have to be, uh, uh, for my part, have to be opposed um, and resisted. But you're right. The, um, I think the, um, the signs in, in many... It's, it's one of the things... It's, 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 it's one of the perverse consequences of the kind of crisis which we've been living through is that the... Uh, um, much of the energy, much of the political energy, belongs to uh, political forces on on the right, and there is which want to uh, um, which want to isolate and fragment and destroy the cooperation which currently exists, rather than build and and, and strengthen and move in a in in, in a different uh, direction. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. I just want to, before I thank Andrew, and thank you for coming here this evening, and before we go up for, a, for some refreshments, just make an announcement. On the next Monday, uh, I'm having a fight uh, with, with Professor Danny Carr here. We will be discussing a whole a range of issues which Danny and I have discussed before, but it's about, it takes up some of the themes of Andrew on, on, the, on, on the question of the West, but it also picks up one of the themes that Andrew touched on, although didn't develop in any detail, about whether or not there is a power shift or an economic power shift occurring from the West to the East, from the transatlantic area to the Pacific region, and particularly from the United States to China. So Danny and I will have a very civilized LSE discussion on these issues uh, next Monday. And before you, before you come along next Monday, uh, I'm right and Danny is wrong. Um, uh, but Danny, I think, will have something more to say about that. He's a, he's a great guy, and, and we, we have great fun doing this debate. But we think it is a very, very serious discussion, a very serious debate. And getting that one right and wrong or wrong is seems to me is really as crucial as some of the questions that Andrew's raised here tonight. I've been asked by the publishers, of course, because we are the LSE and therefore we're very entrepreneurial to let you know that this book is on sale for only £10, uh, which in dollars, as I said, is $30,000 because, <laughs> because the exchange rate is so bad. But anyway, it's on a 10, 10 livre if you're French um, or, or whatever it comes to. But anyway, £10 and Andrew will be upstairs uh, signing this, this wonderful book. It, again, thank you for coming along this evening. I know you've had a very busy day in your classes, having a wonderful time. Uh, finally, I wonder if you could just say thank you to Andrew for a great talk, very thoughtful, and some great questions. And we'll move up for a drink. Thanks, everybody, and thank you, Andrew. Hey,